As I record this, I'm beginning my second full week in Tokyo, Japan, where I'm conducting my last workshop of the year with my friend George Nebechi. I want to find the words to describe what I've been experiencing, but any words I think would be premature. All I can say is that something very special is happening for me here. George, my students, and I are enjoying wonderful experiences and making thousands of photographs. But what makes everything special is that we are experiencing this journey together. Each of us is learning how to see and bear witness to our personal experiences using the camera. And by sharing them through our images, we are learning about the uniqueness of each other in ways that words just couldn't. I met Robert Hale about 25 years ago through our association with the Black Gallery, a fine art gallery and collective of African American photographers here in Los Angeles. And while I remember his tall, lean look and his ever calm, peaceful demeanor, I also remember a small metal container of prints he would always have with him. It was those images that told me so much about who Robert was. And it wasn't until recently that I finally had the chance to have a proper conversation with a man whose work I have long admired. It's a conversation that was too long coming. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to the Candid Frame. All right, well, welcome, brother. The, the candid frame—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's been so long since I had a chance to see you. Years, yeah, and I've never had really had a proper sit down with you. So no, I, no, I think the last time we were together, there was a party on your deck there. Yeah, those and, are annual summer blasts, <laughs> yeah. and uh, now we spend that money on traveling. <laughs> Good choice. Yeah, because at one point we had. We once threw a summer bash that had over 100 people show up. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Where'd you put them? I mean, the, the deck well, it is not that it, big. It wasn't this house. It I was see. another house that we had before. Okay. We had a front in a backyard, and so it worked. It was one of those those times when every you know you know you have to throw a party, and everyone says, "Oh, you will come," and they never come. Right. Well, this time everybody <laughs> came, <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was quite the thing. But uh, yeah, I think we did that for about maybe eight eight years mm-hmm. and we would do it every summer because it was the one way we could get to see all of our friends exactly you know, well, I try just, to do that when I come in a uh, friend that down in the loft building uh, at the brewery oh okay yeah we try to do the same thing he his friends with my friends we get them all together because this is a way for me because I'm only in town for you know well I'm based here for a month but I'm really only in town for a couple of weeks because I use this as my Jumping off point down to uh, Mexico for the Day of the Dead ceremony, oh, and out to uh, out to uh, Kansas City, and then New Mexico, Santa Fe. You know, sort of running around shooting. So, LA becomes my base. So I'm not here all the time, but I come back in, you know, between uh, between jumps. Yeah, I'm going to get into a lot of your story, but uh, I don't know if you saw that picture that I posted on Instagram the other day when we all met up with uh, Roy DeCarava at the Black Gallery. Did you see no, that? no, I haven't checked it on yeah. Instagram. I have to check your... Yeah, you have to see this picture because um, I had not seen it 
And I was really surprised when someone someone just sent the picture and says, hey, is that you? And I looked. I was sitting in the front, and I remember it was that day that Roy DeCarava came out to- Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah. There we are. My God. You're in there. Yeah, look at all of us. Jesus Christ, we were young. <laughs> <laughs> Lester, Lester Sloan. Willie Middlebrook. Willie, Will, Mid, Willie Middlebrook. My goodness. And I think Irene Furtick, I think, took the, the pictures. Yeah, I, I remember that. She was at uh, USC. USC, right. Yeah. But I, I kind of wanted to start off just talking about that day, because that was just an amazing, amazing day. And I really hadn't talked to anybody about it who was kind of there. I just said, hey, I had a chance once to kind of sit at the feet of Roy DeCarava for yeah. a couple of hours. And yeah. it was just amazing how how generous it was like just uh, what i remember is just all of us standing around him while he was just talking about process and it was yeah. just it was just amazing to be around someone so legendary who was being so generous and i wish i had recorded what he was saying i think but, we, i think we're all you know one of the things about being a still photographer is we forget that there's movement in the world yeah and i try to I try as much as possible when I can remember is in addition to doing still photography is to do film. I'm documenting my father now, who I told oh, yeah. you who's 95. And I was reading an article saying one of the best ways to preserve memories is to film your parents or your people that you're close to. And I do it primarily for my grandchildren, hmm. for them not only to see the image of him, but to hear his voice and maybe pick up some of his mannerisms that you cannot, does not come across right. on a print. And also, like, I was Saturday, I went up to visit uh, Betty Saar, and usually I'll, I'll do some just prints of photographs, still shots of her. And this time I said, no, you know, she's working. Let me just get this, you know, get this movement of her, how she, you know, how she does her thing and, and when she does her thing. So I'm trying to incorporate that more. And with the new cameras now, especially with my, with yeah. my, my, uh, my Nikon 800, the filming is so good. So I've been sort of doing both. Yeah, I, rec I recorded, I record a lot of audio, mm -hmm. of course, because I do this, but yes. I've, interviewed my dad. I didn't interview my dad, but my cousin interviewed mm -hmm. my dad and I recorded it. And I've managed to get recordings of my aunts, my mom. Yeah. yeah. So telling stories of when they were coming up. Yeah. And, uh, but I haven't done a lot of sort of video of that, but it's like, and I have no excuse because with these phones, you can do everything <laughs> That's <the thing>. right. <laughs> exactly. You just have to get that mindset. Yes. You know, I, I wanted to, to talk about Roy because I think that, you know, as, as a photographer of color, it's kind of rare to be able to be in the presence of someone like that. You know, I was lucky enough to meet, meet Gordon Parks and spend some time with him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that Roland, Roland Charles, uh, who we lost far too early, um, really created an amazing space it was, for, yeah. for photographers of yeah. color to meet up, share yeah. work. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly where you were in terms of your 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 journey as a photographer when you were part of that community. But tell, me, was, tell me about that. Uh, I was... I had a day job, mm -hmm. and it was a corporate day job, and it was a job that afforded me good money, a good pay, a good paycheck. Uh, it afforded me the opportunity to buy a house, to to travel, to do all of these things. But it was still the day job. While I'm doing mm -hmm. this, I'm still honing or endeavoring to hone my skills as a photographer. So I knew Roland, 
from long time before Black Gallery. We knew each other through mutual friends. And when he first formed Black Gallery, uh, we would run at each other. He said, man, you got to come by. And I would go by periodically. But my life was pretty much still in that sort of corporate world and, and a kid and everything. And plus, they were over in Limerick Park, and I was living in uh, Silver Lake at the time. Okay. So it's a bit of distance. But then once I started going, and I decided I was going to really sort of become a part of it, I made an effort to go as often as possible and to get involved with what was going on. So much so that towards the end, I, I became, I went, I was on the board of directors with two or three other guys. But as you were saying, it afforded, it wasn't only the Carava, Deborah Willis came out. Yeah, mm-hmm. She was there. Uh, we had a lot of different people that came through. There was a guy who was shooting for the, uh, who now shoots for the, used to shoot for the LA Times. Uh, came from the, Mercury News. I'm trying to remember his name. Is he uh, black or Latino? No, he's Latino. Oh, um, Gennaro. Gennaro, Gennaro Molina. Gennaro, yeah. Molina. Gennaro came down for a visit one time. He was still with the, um, I think it was Mercury News. Yeah, yeah. I he came that. down for a visit. And again, like Roy, like uh, Deborah, very generous with their time. Also, I think it was a time too, it was pre. It was pre-internet, it was pre-emails, uh, it was pre-everything. So you weren't in such a mad rush to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, once you were there, you were there. Yeah. No Ubers, no, you know, once mm-hmm. you were there, you were there. And I think that, and that lended itself to that sort of uh, familiar uh, relationship where they, they, they would be, sur- we, were, we were surrounded. And it was a small space too. Yeah. It was a very small space. I think we, we could only have, what, 25 People at the most? Yeah. It would get hot in there. It would get hot in there and close. (laughs) Yeah, that was, when I did get involved, I I really, you know, really went into it as much as possible because I was learning so much. And I was learning so much from the other photographers uh, that were there, you know, the different levels. You know, some guys were more on the amateur end and some were on the high end. But Mm -hmm. I was trying to make that leap because I've been a photographer almost all my life. My father and my uncle are photographers. And when I went to went to Vietnam, I went in, I was a photographer. I was a shift photographer. So I've been doing photography oh, since I was 11 years old. So that was always my thing. But when I came, when I went to Europe after the war and I came back, I realized I have a kid to raise. And being an itinerant photographer was mm-hmm. not the way to do it. So I, through uh, my photography teacher, at LACC, made an introduction to a company in downtown LA called Modern Age. I went there for an interview as a photographer, and they said, well, we don't need another photographer. We like your work, but how about repping us? And I said, you know, I don't do, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't sell, <laughs> I don't do that. And so he said to me, well, you know, think about it. And I, I was just back in LA after five years in Sweden, uh, I was too old to be an assistant, or put it this way, I was unwilling to be a, an assistant. <laughs> and I didn't have enough, uh, I hadn't been in the country between five years in, in Stockholm and then four years in the service, you know, with three, yeah. three years of, uh, you know, three tours of Vietnam, I had no contacts in LA. So I took a week to think about it and said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take the job and I'll do it for a year. And at the end of the year, I would jump off back into photography. Mm. 20 years later. 
That's the way it works. That's the way it works. So 20 years later, I finally said, this is it. Uh, my kid's grown. No woman to, to hold me down. And I decided to take the opportunity and jump back into it and you know, continue and to grow the business. Not so much grow the business, but to grow as a, as a craftsman. I never considered myself a, an artist. I've always considered myself a craftsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I use the creative techniques that artists use, you know, for composition and this, that, and the other. And you can say what I do is artistic, but I don't consider myself an artist. I'm a craftsman, so, and I'm comfortable with that. Def- define that for me, then. So what is a craftsman if not an artist? Well, see, the, the word artist is, is uh, it's almost like a catch-all. I mean, you can, you can be, there's, there's musical artists, there's uh, people who, who, quilting artists. Mm-hmm. A carpenter can be considered an artist. I, I find, because I use a camera, because I use a mechanical contrivance mm-hmm. that, that records what I see. I'm, of course, I can manipulate it, but basically it's recording what I see. Unlike... A sculptor who sees a block of clay and already knows what's inside mm-hmm. and can bring it out. Put it this way. This is my analogy. I, we're all dead. I'm sitting at the table, a round table, and there's Picasso, Rodin, Cezanne. All these guys are sitting around the table and me. And so they go around the table. God says, introduce yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and they all say Picasso says I'm a painter and Rodin I'm a sculptor and this and that well Robert what do you do I'm a photographer now it just doesn't carry the same weight okay alright so I'm comfortable with being a craftsman I'm okay with people putting that label as artists on me I'm okay with that but in my mind and in my heart I'm, I'm a craftsman yeah. Well, one of the things I did remember about your work, and we were talking earlier about that tin that you had of those small prints, and I always remember being really struck by your portraiture and especially your use of light. And uh, I just vaguely remember there was one image, and I can't even describe it now, but I remember just looking at one of those things and just like being amazed at it and wishing that I could take a portrait like that. Well, it, it came about because when I was younger, uh, I couldn't afford lighting equipment. I couldn't afford strobes or, okay. or, or uh, power packs or anything like that. And my father, my, my uncle, was a portrait photographer. And he, he had a studio in his house. And he would use lights, mainly incandescent lights. My father was a street photographer, more journalistic. And so he was shooting in the street. So my style is the combination of my, my uncle's mm, portraiture okay. and my father's street. I call it environmental portraits, meaning that I photograph people either in an environment that I choose for them or an environment that they're in that I happen to like. Mm-hmm. So the lighting came about because I had to use ambient light. I have to find... I have to f- I have to find the light to put my subject in. So basically, it's a a three-step process. I find a background that that I find conducive to my subject. I find a light, which means it's a combination of the time of day, the quality of the light. And then I put my subject in that, and everything comes together. Mm -hmm. So that's been my thing. I've tried, I've did studio work, and I've gone to strobes, and while on 
certain instances, I think it, I, it's necessary because you need to be able to control your light at mm -hmm. some time. But I'm most happy being in the streets outside waiting for the overcast weather. Me and Ingmar Bergman share the same, <laughs> share the same passion for uh, over, overcast skies. Oh, man. It's a good company to have. Yes. Did you always know that you wanted to create portraiture? I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a photographer. I, it wasn't defined as to what type of photographer I wanted to be, mm -hmm. but it was just the influences of a father and an uncle and the combination of their two styles. So it came out spending time at my uncle's house watching him photograph everyone in the neighborhood, spending time in the streets with my fa father photographing everybody in the neighborhood. Yeah. So it sort of came together and I like people and I find people fascinating. I like the idea of the griot, the storyteller in the African culture. I try to, when I photograph people, I'm, there's an interesting thing that goes around and one of the statements is that, well, you know, you've captured someone's soul. Nope, don't do that. That's <laughs> not mm -hmm. my thing. Whatever you see in the picture is your own values that you're putting on that person. Right. Your own perception of what that person looks like to you or, or, or attitude is to you. It's nothing to do with me. All I do is provide an image that is <sighs> creative, clear, and a moment that I've been able to, that I'm able to break down that barrier that we all have, that we all put up to protect ourselves. I do that to a combination of just talk, 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 until you hit upon a subject that you both can agree upon. And then suddenly you have this, the French call it rapprochement. Suddenly you have, you've reached this, ah, I know, I know where you were, Robert, I've been there. And suddenly you have this thing. And right then and there, I hit the shutter, got the shot. So it's basically making your subject comfortable, having your subject Forget about, not forget completely about because it's a camera in front of him. And the Eisenberg effect says once you aim a camera at someone, they're going to automatically mm -hmm. react to it. So my thing is, is to take the camera away. I mean, it's there, but that's not the thing. Right. It's, 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 it's the subject and myself. So uh, let me get this, uh, let's see if I can get this straight. Are you spending a good amount of your energy sort of engaging and trying to get them in that space? And then you begin photographing, or are you kind of periodically photographing, still engaging them, but looking for that moment when that genuine genuineness comes across? It, it varies. Uh, I was shooting for a, for a magazine called uh, Venice Magazine. Mm -hmm. They're no longer around. And what they would do was they would send me to the uh, Beverly, not the Beverly Hills Hotel, there's a hotel over on, on uh, Robertson. Four Seasons something. I can't remember. Del Air? No, no. It's it's off of uh, Third Third and, and uh, not Robinson, Third yeah. and, and uh, I know what Doheny, you're talking, you know what I'm talking about. about. Yeah, but I don't know the name of it. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, when an actor or was has done a movie or whatever, they have to do the the uh, the talk show, show circuit. And also mm -hmm. they do the interview uh, circuit. So the, a room is rented for them in the hotel. It'll come to me momentarily. And so you, each magazine has an hour. So first the writer goes in and the writer gets 45 minutes. The photographer gets 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So you have 15 minutes to, to, to set up, shoot this guy and, and make it 
magazine worthy. So I would always scout the, I would scout beforehand. So I know exactly where I'm going to shoot. I know exactly what the lighting is going to be like. So I've already chosen my background. I already know what the lighting is going to be. So the only thing I have to do is to put my subject in that space mm -hmm. and get him to her to uh, relax. So what I started to do was I took my 10, as we talked about earlier. Oh. And so while I'm faking setting up for the shot, I already know exactly what I'm going to do, but I need to, I need to give them time to go from an interview with a writer and suddenly they got a camera stuck in their face and they have no idea who I am as a person or as a photographer. They've never seen my mm -hmm. work, don't know my name. And you may be the seventh, 10th, 15th photographers. If you exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's like the 10, you got to be different. So I, kind of uh, fake that I'm setting up the shot and I give them the 10 to look at. And so they look at the pictures and then I give them five minutes of my 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say, okay, we're ready now. At that point, they know my work and they kind of, through a photographer's work, you get an idea of who the photographer is, mm -hmm. like a painter or any other artist or craftsman. <laughs> you get an idea of who they are. So that allows me to, to kind of break down that, that stranger barrier. Yeah. And one of the things I, and, but then within that, there are other things I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, I'm trying to get away from cliched images, which means that, you know, you've got to be creative. And one of the periods that I was going through was hands, trying to incorporate hands into my portraits without it being the Malcolm X look or mm -hmm. the, you know, that, that whole thing. And I remember I was shooting uh, Sir Ian McClellan, and I'm trying to work out how to, sh how to photograph him sitting down in a chair with his hands without putting his fist on his cheek, mm -hmm. you know, that, that whole thing. And just as we're talking, and uh, he reaches up and he puts his hand over his heart. And I don't know if he did it for me or if it was just a gesture that he does. And I hit the shutter right away. That was the shot. Everything else was icing on the cake. I yeah. knew I had it. I was photographing uh, Cecil Mary uh, for the LA Weekly. I had uh, 10 minutes between services to get him. And the deacons didn't want me to come in because he's got the service coming up. He's got to get back on the, on, the, on, the, uh, uh, on, on the podium. And I said, well, look, you explain to the LA Weekly why they have a story about him and no photograph. So they said, well, we'll get him. So he comes out and I got like five minutes. And I took my regular shot of him and he puts his hands up and he says, Robert, I gotta go. And I did the <laughs> shot <laughs> and everyone thinks he's preaching. So you just, you, 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 and I already had the lighting down. I already mm -hmm. knew and my background. So that was all taken care of. The third part was to, to get a shot of him that gives some sort of indication who he is or some sort of, evokes some sort of emotion. Yeah. Either negative or positive. And so his hands up like that, and he's a preacher. It's perfect. Perfect, yeah. That just this speaks to the idea of, of the importance of being present with your subject. You're engaging with them, but you always have to be observing them. You're in control. You know, and, and taking a look at every little yeah. thing that they're doing. You're yeah. talking to them, you're taking pictures, but you can't be so fixated on the camera and the act of taking pictures to the point you take your eye off what's happening with right. your subject. You can, you, can, you can look at your subject and not really see them. Right. And then you just end up taking a bunch of pictures. Right, and you exactly. Just hope you get lucky. Right. But what we're talking here is about really being... Well, I shot with a Hasselblad. Oh, yeah, that's and right. Yeah, 12 remember, exposures. That's right, yeah. <laughs> you got 12... And, and 
I'm not 36, not 30, 24, 35. So I got 12 exposures. And my discipline was to get my shot in 12 exposures. I felt, in fact, I had a dream one time. I would, they would pay me all this money to just one exposure. Yeah. So, so I have 12 exposures. And so I know, as you said, the background, the lighting is fine. It's the subject. And uh, oftentimes I will say to my subject, and I do this with people who are very inexperienced with being photographed. I say, I tell them, point to the, the camera lens. And I said, everybody that's going to see this picture are all in there. They're all sitting on bleachers looking at you. <laughs> so this is not between you and I. This is between you and that, that, that one-eyed Cyclops. Okay. That's the relationship. So I put the onus on them to look into the lens and not at me. And mm. basically, as I say, hopefully to be as honest as they can be yeah. without doing the smiles or, you know, whatever smug thing that they do. So I, I put that honest on them. And it's interesting because suddenly they are involved in the process. They're actively yeah. involved in the process. And that changed the, the dynamics completely. It's not just you as the photographer and them as a subject. It's you with the camera and them with the camera. The camera becomes the central figure that unites the both of us. Yeah. And so you let the camera do the work. But as you said, you're looking out for these, these moments that, that come about almost unconsciously or subconsciously by your subject at times. And you just have to be ready for that. But at the same time, the reason I only do 12 exposures is because anything for me after 12, they're mugging for the camera. So you shoot digital now. Do you still try to keep it down? I shoot, I shoot, uh, I probably about five frames. Wow. That's it. I don't like the idea. I, it becomes repetitious. And I know yeah. a lot of people work on the percentage. Mm -hmm. If I shoot 120, I'm bound to get one or two. I tend to be more... Uh, dis I discipline myself, self-discipline. So it forces me to, to, to be aware, to be conscious that I only have five frames to get these. And plus it, it makes it, I find it much more exciting. Well, I find it much more exciting. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that challenge. <laughs> like I said, I'd, one day I'd like for someone to pay me a lot of money just to do one shot. It's like putting a, a 12 megabyte or 50 megabyte card in your camera and you just got, got only got those many images and you can't delete anything. Nope. Just, just, just do that. Mm, that would be an interesting exercise. It's, 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 it forces you because a lot, you know, when you're doing a, when you're doing a sitting, yes, it's about the subject, but you still have to continue to grow. You cannot mm -hmm. continue to repeat the same process each time and different subjects require a different way of, of getting them to, to, um, uh, to react, to drop their guard. And I think that's what it comes down to, is to drop their guard. And plus, I like people. Yeah. So I'm engaging, and, and, and I like to have fun with it. I try not, because I hate to be photographed, <laughs> I can't stand it. I know some people love it, but I can't stand it. So I have to come up with, um, it's interesting. You know, it almost becomes a lot of times psychological, because people say to me often, oh, I'm not photogenic, or or uh, I hate being photographed. And I say, everybody's photogenic. I don't know anyone that's not photogenic. I mean, you may, you may not consider yourself the most attractive person in the world, 
But everyone has, everyone can be photographed and everyone can be photographed well because it, it, it transcends looks. It transcends, I mean, yes, if you're shooting for a glamour magazine, yes, they have to be beautiful. But we're talking about people. As someone said, everyone has something to give. Everyone knows something that you don't know. Yeah. Everyone. So when I'm shooting, regardless of what they look like, I'm more interested in them, that person, that individual, relaxing long enough to just open up. Yeah. And you get that moment. But if you understand that that is what a portrait is for you, why do you resist having the lens turned on you? I tried to photograph Roy one time, Roy de Carabra, yeah. one in New York. It's just no pictures. And the same thing was with, was with the French photographer, uh, uh, Cartier Bresson. Mm -hmm. I would rather that people know my name, but not my face. Because I have this incredible desire and need for anonymity. Mm. I do not want to approach someone and they say, oh, you're Robert Hale. I recognize you. And so automatically they start to whatever they do. Right. And plus, and also you can't go places because they know who you are. Where's your camera? So for me, the name is perfect. Oh, you're Robert Hale. Your name is Robert. Oh, I've heard about you. Uh, they don't know what I do. They just heard the name. So it gives me an opportunity to approach my subjects to be unknown, to be an unknown factor to them. And therefore, I'm curious to them. It's the curiosity thing. I, they're as curious, curious about me as I am about them. As humans, we all like to, uh, if you like people, you enjoy meeting them and finding out, you know, what's he like or what's she like. Mm -hmm. I think that mystery that exists and, and the process of, I'm talking to them, they're talking to me, we've never met before. They have no idea who I am. They've not seen pictures of me. Someone told them, well, you know, there's this photographer named Robert Hale. He said, okay. So the idea of having my pictures everywhere, and plus I'm, I was raised Catholic, and they put that thing, and must plus African-American parents, don't get a big head, son. <laughs> <laughs> don't get a big head. And it's not about, it's not self-deprecating. Mm -hmm. It's just, I'm just not comfortable uh, with the lens focused on me. Although, that being said, there are certain photographers who ask to photograph me and I love their work and their style and I would acquiesce. Yeah. I don't do it for the same yeah. reasons you do in terms of avoiding being in photographs. I have, I'll admit it, it's vanity. You know, <laughs> just like most of every, that, yeah. every, that's it right there. Right, yeah. There's no, yeah, I wish I had a, as wonderful excuse as you do, but it's just like. I made this up. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I get by. <laughs> but um, one of the, uh, the challenges of just making a career, uh, being a photographer, especially a professional photographer, is just making it work over a long period of time. And you've managed to, managed to do it. You've been living in different parts of the world and you know, different cities, but it's not easy. No, so, no. So what's sort of gotten you sort of through it? Because was it the experience of having worked on nine to five and having that under your belt? And I never worked nine to five. 
Okay. It was never nine to five. But it was a it was a job. It was a job. Okay. So I mean, but I was a, I was basically what we call what you would call nowadays a uh, <laughs> what's the term? I was uh, I was in, I was working for them, but I was also a freelance. I was a, oh, you were a contract contract. Okay. Pretty much that. All right. Uh, I think. Okay. For example, what when I go to. It depends on how much money I have, how fleshy I am at the time. Mm-hmm. If I'm coming off an exhibition or something, I made you know I made a lot of money. Then I, I, I if it doesn't go back into the business, which is almost always, yeah. you know, between the camera and the computer and everything else that you need nowadays, uh, upgrading. I usually travel very frugally. I remember the early days when I first started going to Morocco about ten years ago, and I just moved to France. So I was really just starting out there. So I didn't have a lot of money. And I remember staying in some places that was just, uh, I think I paid like seven bucks a night. And it was just a bare light bulb hanging over mm-hmm. from the ceiling. And there was a communal bathroom, which you wouldn't want to go into. Even the locals don't want to yeah. go into. But that meant that when I got to my destination, I could, I would be free. I could shoot. I could, I could eat. I could do these things. So, but the getting there, the process of, of getting there, the, the air travel, I would take um, low cost airlines. So all of that was to, I didn't need the luxury. Nowadays, that, now that I'm older, uh, usually when I go into countries, I always live nicely. I stay in a nice hotel. And then I go shooting wherever the destination takes me. And I'm there, I'm just, all I need is a roof over my head. And then I save that money that I would normally spend for a nice hotel there. I get a cheap hotel. So when I leave, I say have a nice last day there and spend the money mainly on traveling. And when I get back home to work on the prints and stuff. So it's more, it's more, I've always been frugal. I've always been able to live off the land. I've always been able to, I was very comfortable going to places where most people, tourists wouldn't go. Uh, I've had this sort of bizarre faith in the universe that it would look after me. And that as long as I remained honest and humble and, and caring, then it would look after me. I didn't have to do anything else. And so that's how I go about it. I often they say, isn't it like I go to Tijuana every year to photograph the Day of the Dead ceremonies. I've been doing this for 17 years, mm-hmm. even at the height of the, of the drug wars and all of this stuff. But I knew people there and they would say, well, okay, Robert, we can go here, we can go there, or we have to leave. When the shooting is getting good, they said, we got to go. I don't question them. Yeah. We go. But when the I, shooting starts, the shooting, shooting stops. Shooting stops. And most of the time, it, it's not where you are, but yeah. it could happen. So they always say, you, you, could, you could go to Tijuana? I mean, isn't it dangerous? I said, it's not any more dangerous than the Beverly Center when you got a Porsche and someone carjacks you. Or it's, no, it's not any more dangerous than being in New York and the electrical outlet hits the grates and you're electrocuted walking across Fifth Avenue. It's not any more dangerous than anything. You just have to be aware of where you are. Mm-hmm. Keep your eyes open. Make sure you make sure you get to know the locals there because they will keep you out of trouble. It's like a tourist going to New York and you want to take a little walk through Central Park at eleven fifteen or twelve o'clock at night. The locals will say, "Nah, not a good idea." Yeah, <laughs> not a good. So I, I tend to engage with people and. 
unfortunately, with the rise of the internet and the dissemination of images, uh, we are not able to photograph. People are not as willing to pose for you mm -hmm. as they used to be because they don't know where the image is going to end up or how it's going to be used. That's more here and in Europe. And Africa and in, in, in other places I've been, there's no problem. There's no issue. If you approach them, you know, tell them what you, what you would like to do and who you are, most of the time it's yes. And even in India, from what I understand, photographers, they even ask you to photograph them. They don't even want to see anything. They just like the idea of being photographed. Ethiopians are the same way. They like the idea of being photographed. So uh, it's, I make a little money selling uh, when I do an exhibition, if I'm lucky. You know how that goes. Yeah. Uh, we, would, we would have an expression, we put two buckets by the door. One bucket's for compliments and the other bucket's for cash. <laughs> <laughs> Compliment bucket's always filled to the brim. <laughs> so the, the work, you know, you've been doing a lot of traveling. Yeah. Um, we were talking a lot about in terms of the editorial work, but, you know, the work that, that has been involved with you traveling to different places. Tell, tell me about that in terms of what, how do you describe that, that well, work and what, and what role does it play? You know, I, had, I have a lot of friends in, in Hollywood, actors, and sometimes you're sitting around having a conversation with them and, and the, the topic comes up about, can you control your career? Can, mm -hmm. you, can you pick and choose properly? You know, decide not to take this one, but to take that one. Uh, can you control your career? And most of the honest ones say, no. I mean, sometimes you're going to take the wrong part or you're going to uh, uh, miss out on the part for whatever reason. I find it the same way. I don't try to, I don't try to, I don't have a path to where I want to go. Uh, for example, I was in, uh, I've been going to Morocco for the last 10 years documenting a little village in the Rift Mountains, uh, about three and a half hours southeast of Tangier called the Blue City. Uh, actually, the proper name is Chef Shawin, but it's called the Blue City because almost all the buildings are painted, painted either indigo or azure blue. And I found it uh, the first time I went. I went to Fez the very first time from France because I didn't have a long-term visa. Mm -hmm. And you only have 90 days in the country oh, okay. when you have to leave. And if the authorities are out there listening, especially the uh, the international authorities, I'm not saying this. I'm being forced to say this. I got a gun <laughs> to my head. <laughs> the Schengen Agreement, which is an agreement that was reached by most of the European Union countries, that they would drop their borders, which means everyone that adheres to the Schengen. And the Schengen, it actually, is the name of the town in Luxembourg where the agreement was was ratified. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called Schengen, S-C-H-E-N-G-E-N, which states that you can stay in any EU country for 90 days, but then you have to stay out for 180 before you can come back again. So there's the letter of the law, and there's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is you leave every 90 days. Get your passport stamped that you're leaving, get the stamp when you arrived in another country, get it stamped again when you leave that country. So you arrive back to where you started with a fresh, new, You've come from another country. Right. The spirit. <laughs> You're listening, guys. The spirit. <laughs> I'm going to be. The, I'm going to do the letter soon. Right now, it's the spirit. So, I was doing the spirit of the law. So I had to find. And another reason for living in the south of France was the proximity 
to yeah. everything, to Africa, to uh, to Europe, everything. So it was really wonderful for me because I'd never been to that part of the world. I mean, in the I spent all the time in Asia, Australia, and Japan, and China, and the Philippines, and Singapore, all these places. But I'd never spent time other than when I lived in Stockholm for five years. Spent time in Europe and especially Africa. So I've been going back and forth for the last 10 years. And about a year ago, last March, I meet this Argentinian guy. He's a poet from Argent Argentina. And we started to talk and he says, you know, I like to do collaborations. And by the way, he has this benign obsession with the number seven. And he says, I'd like to do co collaborations. Would you be interested? I've written seven poems for a composer to do seven pieces with. I've written seven poems for illustrator to do seven illustrations, mm -hmm. seven poems for a painter. Uh, I would like to do seven poems, and you would illustrate those poems with your photography. So I said, sounds like a good idea. I've always wanted to collaborate with someone. I always thought it was going to be a writer going to some place, and he'd do the story, and I okay. would do the photographs, which is a classic collaboration, yeah. photographer-writer. So you fly, fly paper of life? Mm -hmm. This one is, he's a poet. So I was interested. So he gave me, he wrote the seven poems and I went out and shot seven pictures and he liked them. And we, you know, we discussed it back and forth. He get, he goes back to, he goes back to, he was in Ireland at the time and I go back to France. And he, a couple of months later, he sent me an email saying, well, you know, we want to do this experimental film and I'd like you to be the, director of photography to do the photography, do the film and also do the stills. And I said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. So we're going to shoot it in the Canary Islands mm. on the 7th of July. <laughs> seven days, seven, for, for seven days, a seven day shoot okay. from the 7th to the 14th. We want you there. Well, I was doing a fashion shoot outside of Paris on the 6th of July. And I said, I don't know if I can get down there by the 7th because uh, I got to finish up in Paris Go home, change, get new equipment, get on the plane and fly to the Canary Islands. And plus the money, because he wasn't paying me anything. And this is how a lot of things happen. A lot yeah. of things happen because the project sounds interesting. And also a place that I'd never been before sounded interesting. And the opportunity to bring back images from a place you've never been before. So I thought about it and I thought about it and I said, okay, well, I could work it out. So I did my shoot. Finished up the show, I uh, got it, got into my hotel about midnight, took a bus at six in the morning to Paris, jumped on the plane at 12 noon, flew to the Grand Canaries. Uh, they picked me up there and I spent the most seven incredible days tiring. I was, mm -hmm. And I was the oldest dude there by far. The medium age was like 28 <laughs> and I'm 72. <laughs> but I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cool, man. I'm trying to be cool. The old man is cool. Uh, so that happened because of that. And because of that, uh, there's a show in London uh, from these images. Uh, there's, they're, they're pushing, they're, they're working on the uh, editing for the video, for the movie now. Uh, so all these things have come about. It's from amazing. That. So with my, that one experience and my paying 800 and some euros, which is about $1,000, which I could not afford, to go to the Canary Islands has turned out to be something. Yeah. You couldn't afford not to go. At this point, in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, yeah. yes. And because it, it and I kind of knew that. I kind of knew intrinsically that this would lead to something else. I didn't know where it was going to go. So, but I would follow it. 
and the group uh, that I did the fashion show with, this came about also by happenstance. I was at a Fourth um, of July party in Marseille that was given by this American woman from San Francisco at her home. And so all the expats showed up. And I'm there with my girlfriend at the time. And this little, beautiful little six-year-old girl is running around and I start talking to her in my little Donald Duck voice and she's enthralled and we and I said could I take a picture of you so I took a picture of her and her brother was her uncle was there along with her grandmother and I told him I'll send the picture to you so I emailed him the photograph of the little girl Maya was her name about a year later I got an email saying that um, they loved the picture of, of Jaya, not Maya, Jaya. They love the picture of Jaya. And would I be interested in going to Togo mm -hmm. for a project? And I said, Togo? I never even heard of Togo. Yeah. And, I, and I looked at it on the map between, uh, between uh, um, Ghana and Benin on the coast. Yeah. So I said, sure. You know, they were paying for everything, the flight and this and that. So I fly to Togo most amazing time I've had. And then the next, last year I went with them, we went to Cameroon to do a shoot. So all of these things, a lot of times there's no money involved, but there are other things more important. I yeah. come back with images, I come back with experiences, I come back with stories. Fortunately for me, I have a great social security that goes a long way in the south of France, mm -hmm. much more than it would here because housing is much less expensive there and, and medical, everything is much less expensive there than it is here. So that, and I do, you know, I, I do, I have a lot of uh, commissions. Okay. So I do a lot of commissions. I've been, right now, I've been, for the last two years, two and a half years, I've been the house photographer for a jazz club in, my, in the town I live in. And a lot of musicians buy, you know, their images, and I do their when they record albums. I do the uh, uh, the images for the covers, and I also do the recording sessions. Wow. You're busy, so I keep, I keep busy. Yeah. So, in terms of sort of establishing your presence as a photographer there, as compared to here, what would you say are the differences? Uh, there, they don't have the same amount. Of, they don't have the America's a big country. LA is a big city. Between Art Center and used to be Brooks and all these schools, they're pushing out a couple thousand photographers yeah. every every semester from somewhere in the country. And then you got the European photographers who come in here and the Asian photographers come in here because this is where the market is, you know. So consequently, in Europe, there's not a big there's not a big market there. For, so it's not as, it's not as sat, it's not as saturated there as it is here. Okay. Also, the idea of being a photographer in Europe is much more, it's more of a cachet for people than it is here. You are considered, again, an artist. <laughs> I was about to say. I know, I know. I have difficulty with that. But you're considered an artist. But I think, and I have to throw this in, because this is that little cachet thing too, being African-American sets you apart. It's like my, my 10. <laughs> mm -hmm. Being an African-American sets you apart, especially in France. Um, kind of a little bit Italy also and Spain, but really especially in France. Because African-Americans have been blazing this trail. And I, as, as when French people ask me, how did you get here and why are you here? 
I said, I'm following the same groove that Josephine Baker and and uh, um, the writer uh, James Baldwin, James Baldwin, all these people mm-hmm. made before me. Uh, so for me to be there and and you get a pass. I remember I have a great story. I was dating this uh, Irish girl. She had just broken up with this guy, and he was still madly in love with her and calling mm-hmm. her all the time. And uh, we were in the car one day driving someplace, and he calls her on her cell phone, and she holds the phone out. I said, it's him again. It's him again. I said, give me the phone. Give me the phone. I said, oh, come on. Come on, dude. Grow up. Grow up. It's over. You know, let it go. You're acting like a child now. And I handed the phone back to her, <laughs> and she hung up on him. And about a week later, she says, he calls me back. And I said, well, what did he say? And she says, he said, dripping with venom, are you with that American photographer? (laughs) The fact that he did not go to color, I said, if you don't want him, I'll take him. (laughs) So that's that's one of the differences. They don't go there. That's not their default is to go there. So you, you have that. And also, I've never asked for a show. In France, since mm-hmm. I've been there, 10 years, they've always offered me exhibitions. Uh, the last one I did, I had three running conc- concurrently, simultaneously. And they just offered it to me. When I did my first gallery, they offered that. It's always been offered. I've never had to ask for it, whether that's because of my brilliant personality or whatever, or my skills, I don't know. But that's one of the things, one of the reasons I like that. I like that. Plus, it's an old culture. These are old cultures. Um, they they have gone past the you know this is new and, and what is the United States? We're two hundred and forty one years old, yeah, I think. Like it, yeah. I mean, the house I live in is older than than the country. Wow. So when you when you have that kind of basis and you have that kind of stability and you have that kind of everything, sort of becomes a bit more more depth. Mm-hmm. We're still more surface here in this country. It's more depth, and with that depth comes a more understanding of life and how things work, especially in the South. I live in the South in Provence, which up until 1999 was rural before they built the, uh, the TGV, the, the bullet train that went from Paris down South. It was agricultural, except for the Côte d'Azur, uh, uh, Nice and Antibes and all those places. But the rest of the South is all farms, all farmlands. So it's an old agrarian culture, old values. And in the South, like Southern California, everything is centered around food, wine, and sunshine, and people getting together. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I like about traveling out there. And one of the reasons my, why my wife, who if she listens to this, is going to say, <laughs> see, I keep telling you, we should move. <laughs> but yeah. the whole idea that you can sit at a cafe or a restaurant and you're hanging out there for a couple of hours, exactly. people, just chatting yep. is is wonderful. I mean, here you're always like inhaling your food and yeah. then moving off to do something else. And yeah. there's something to be said for that sort of casual lingering in people's company. Yeah. I was it's, having I was having uh, lunch in uh, Highland Park okay. on Figueroa at a dumpling place, and we were sitting. Kevin uh, Haas, I think, the photographer, he does does a lot of work on trains. Photographer went to Brooks. You you went to Brooks, didn't you? No, no, no. I, no, I thought no. you went to Brooks. No, I didn't go to photo school. I went to I got a degree degree in English lit at, at Berkeley. Okay. Well, 
we were sitting there and we were you know talking because I have they visited me in France and I showed them around so they were reciprocating by you know buying me lunch and we're sitting there and suddenly the waiter comes over and says uh, I hate to push you out but there are people waiting and it shocked me because mm-hmm. I'm not used to, I mean you sit there yeah. in, in in France you sit there for two or three hours you may even have just one little cup of coffee and in Morocco forget it <laughs> Morocco <laughs> Morocco you can sit there all day long so. Cultural difference and also money. Yeah, it's very expensive to have these places, so they got to have that client turnover. Whereas uh, those countries, it's all about people spending time there and and bringing other people in and the ambiance and the camaraderie and the communication, which it takes precedent. Mm-hmm. As as Americans say, when they come over, everything closes from twelve to noon or twelve to two o'clock. Don't these people want to make money? Oh, they want to live their lives. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be? You mean local? Anybody. Anybody? Alive or dead from anywhere. (laughs) Uh, I have this interesting friend. His name is Lou Jones. Lou, Lou, I know Lou Jones. You know Lou? I know (laughs) Lou. I've interviewed him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, we were, I I spent some time with him in Boston. Uh, okay, you know Lou Jones. But that's a good recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Lou. And, oh, there's a great guy. Ah, oh, I know you got to do. Vern Evans. I don't know that. Vern, Vern Evans, uh, his studio is in, in the brewery. If you go on to uh, Instagram mm-hmm. and none of that look up things, V-E-R-N-E-V-A-N-S. Incredible, really? incredible okay. photographer. Uh, I, how did I find out about Vern? Oh, my, uh, I had a friend who had a, his loft was in, in the brewery and Vern was the next door neighbor. And then I started going on and his work is just, uh, I, I can't describe his work. And he's, he's, he spends a lot of time in Cuba, a lot of time in Cuba, uh, a lot of time and he, he he does he does work for um, a chain called Dead Rabbit. The Dead Rabbit uh, it's a it's a group. They have restaurants and whatever in New okay. York, and they commissioned him to go to Ireland uh, for two weeks to photograph people. Amazing! Oh man! Amazing! If you look at it on Instagram, but Fern Evans is I think would be a wonderful interviewee. Interviewee. Interview, interview, you'd interview, interview yeah, 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 interviewee. Interviewee for you. Well, thanks, man. Well, it's been it a pleasure. Was, yeah, man, it was so much fun. I'm glad we got the chance to hook up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to see because I'm only two months in the States and between work, you know, I have the same, uh, I've been working for the same. There's two clients that I have that I've been, sh- one I've been shooting. This is my 22nd year in the role. Wow. And I still shoot for the Director's Guild, you know, periodically when I'm in town. So I my my two months because I know this is happening every year. They give me the dates a, a, a week after I leave, so I can plan everything around it. People in France, how do you how do you know you're going to be this place at this certain day? I said it's all planned out. That's <laughs> good. Twenty two years. So I come in on the East Coast to New York, spend time there visiting friends there, Lou amongst them, mm-hmm. and I go down to Virginia to visit my parents, my parent, and my family. And then uh, I just started slowly meandering my way west, New Orleans, uh, Kansas City, 
Cincinnati, Ohio, whatever, wherever I have buyers. Yeah. You're leading a rich life. It's, in a, what do they say, rich in, rich in spirit, poor in, <laughs> was it poor in something, but it's a good life. I, I enjoy it. Uh, I, go to, I go to Istanbul on Thursday, which I tell people jokingly, I go to Turkey on Turkey Day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, brother. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Robert for sharing his time and story with us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting his website, rhalephoto.com. And that's photo spelled F-O-T-O. And follow him on Instagram, where you can find him as at SharpEye. You can also support the show by writing a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or word of mouth. It makes all the difference. Thanks to Emperor HB from the UK for their five-star review. And check out our YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr Pool. Check out the TCF Flickr Pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is available. You can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code PORELLO40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Timothy Floyd, Francis Perez, Jeffrey Nissler, and Jim Fisher for their recent contributions. Not all episodes may be available on your podcaster app of choice. So to download, listen, and share any and all episodes of the show, download the TCF app for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, the show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.